And this is Break the Habit. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. It's a famous quote. Maybe you've heard it. It's been variously and erroneously, I may add, attributed to uh, both Henry Ford and to Tony Robbins. I find it somewhat funny and also perhaps a little typical that it's erroneously attributed to two men when in fact it was a woman who first actually coined the phrase, Ms. Jessie Potter. She was an educator and a family counselor in Milwaukee. And this is her quote, and it first appeared in the Milwaukee Sentinel in 1981. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. She's talking, of course, about the power of habit. Here's a book called The Power of Habit. It's one of my absolute favorites. In fact, I have recommended this book to more people than any other book in my life, save perhaps Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and, of course, the Bible. It's a great book. Not a Christian book, but an extremely helpful one nonetheless. Charles Duhigg is the author. I highly, highly recommend it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you a couple snippets from the book. And while I do so, if you were brave enough to take one of the post-it notes, I would like you to write down one of your favorite habits. Feel free to be ridiculous or funny. Feel free to be poignant and deep if you prefer. That's fine. And then fold it up and just pass it to the aisle. So if you have one, just pass it to the aisle. And in a few minutes, I'm going to come and collect those. So that's what you get to do while I get to read from The Power of Habit. When you woke up this morning, what did you do first? Did you hop in the shower, check your email, or grab a donut from the kitchen counter? Did you brush your teeth before or after you toweled off? Tie the left or the right shoe first. What did you say to your kids on your way out the door? Which route did you drive to work? When you got to your desk, did you deal with email, chat with a colleague, or jump into writing a memo? Salad or hamburger for lunch? When you got home, did you put on your sneakers and go for a run or pour yourself a drink and eat dinner in front of the television? Quote, all our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits, end quote. William James wrote in 1892. Most of the choices we make each day may feel like the products of well-considered decision-making, but they're not. They're habits. And though each habit means relatively little on its own, over time, the meals we order, what we say to our kids each night, whether we save or spend, how often we exercise, and the way we organize our thoughts and work routines have enormous impacts on our health, productivity, financial security, and happiness. One paper published by a Duke University researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actual decisions, but habits. William James, like countless others from Aristotle to Oprah, spent much of his life trying to understand why habits exist. But only in the past two decades have scientists and marketers really begun understanding how habits work and, more importantly, how they change. You're like, this is the kind of stuff he reads? No wonder he's so strange. Habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. This effort-saving instinct is a huge advantage. 
An efficient brain requires less room, which makes for a smaller head, which makes childbirth easier and therefore causes fewer infant and mother deaths. An efficient brain also allows us to stop thinking constantly about basic behaviors such as walking and choosing what to eat so we can devote mental energy to inventing spears, irrigation systems, and eventually airplanes and video games. But conserving mental effort is tricky because if our brains power down at the wrong moment, we might fail to notice something important such as a predator hiding in the bushes or a speeding car as we pull into the street. So our basal ganglia, which is you can think of as the root of the brain, Our basal ganglia have devised a clever system to determine when to let habits take over. It's something that happens whenever a chunk of behavior starts or ends. So the book goes on to talk about chunking. So pass me your, you have one? Chunking. So the the tendency the brain has to reduce the things that we do all the time from a routine into a habit. This is so that we can act without thinking. Right? For example, I'm not thinking right now about walking. All I'm trying to do is talk while at the same time collecting all these notes so that you don't feel like I wasted any time and we don't get that awkward silence that is the kryptonite of many churches. Right? You're sitting there, I don't know what we're supposed to do, I feel so weird. Right? So I'm not thinking about any of those things, I'm just doing it. I am thinking about trying not to drop these and about how I'm going to segue from this and like, wow, Second service actually gave me more post-it notes than first service. So those are the things I'm thinking about, but I wasn't thinking about breathing and I wasn't thinking about walking because my brain has reduced those routines down to a habit so it frees up this CPU to focus on more important things like trying to be funny and nice at the same time. Habits. Clean my desk before I start a new project or a job. And only then, like, what's it like before? You sh- hopefully you have another project coming soon, right? What's it like while you're on the project? That's interesting. My desk is always messy, so I'm not one to talk. Whenever I'm getting ready, I sing to myself in the mirror pretending that I'm an artist. Very awesome. I know someone else who does that. They shall remain nameless. This is very scary, by the way, because I don't know what's here. And so I only have like a split second from when I look at it to decide if I'm going to read it or not. Cooking, what? Cooking my breakfast before I sleep. What do you eat? <laughs> it's like, that is very well cooked porridge. I don't even know. Wow, that's impressive. Oh, that's nice. To wake up to enjoy a cup of tea delivered by my husband as he left for work. That's a lucky spouse. I like that. These are good. You guys were way more participatory than check Facebook, than first service. That's a habit. I do that too. Oh, it's a bad habit. Oh, I know who this is from. (laughs) It's also got a love note on it. I usually don't make my bed. From Zoe, kiss, kiss, hug, hug. I love you. You're the best. And you don't make your bed. You're a rat. Snack before bed. People from first service do that too. So do I. I have a bowl of cereal. What the? Eating round toast with peanut butter as a bedtime snack. Also, their penmanship is really outstanding. So this is a very organized person. Walking daily. That's good. I try to do that every day, keep my cholesterol down. Some of you, like, stuck them together. These are probably also the efficient people. You really didn't want, ah, this is nice. I pray. That's good. My parents do every day. They pray for us every single morning. They have my whole life. Check the weather, eat breakfast right after I wake up. 
I'm always starving in the morning. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. Drinking coffee all day, God bless you. Sleeping, very, very creative, that one. My spouse has a habit of inviting over... Oh, no. Okay, my spouse has a habit of inviting over in-laws and not telling me. I have a bad habit of giving them a harder time than I should. (laughs) This is the power of an anonymous tip, right? Wow. No wonder Crime Stoppers is anonymous. I sit when I put on my shoes. I know, me too. I actually say you're supposed to, like, practice because it's good for you. That first cup of coffee at McDonald's. Do you do that? You always go to the same place? That's pretty fun. Morning routine. Shower, shave, and I, what is that? And looks like scouting. That can't be. Shower, shave, and scenting? See, I don't even know what that is. You could ask Dave Barker, though. He knows something about it. Very good. These are your habits. Pretty cool, right? So um, I have some habits, too. I'll give you a good one first and then a weird one. So um, I habitually preach the same way. So Monday, I don't touch the Bible. I stay away from the Bible. It makes me miss Jesus by Tuesday. So I stay away from it on Monday. And then Tuesday, I already know what I'm preaching, right? Because I set the sermon schedule way, way, way in advance. Lord willing, I know what we're preaching the spring of 2019. So I already know what's coming. So Tuesday, I look at my text, and that's when I do my first intuitive pass. I kind of work with it and just kind of spend some time and hang out with it. Wednesday is my I got to know what it's about day. So by the time Wednesday is done, I got to know what it's about or else I can't sleep. So I just work with that text until I break its back, until I'm like, yes, I know what this is about. That's Wednesday. Thursday is my make sure I'm not a heretic day. So Thursday is where I go to the text. I go to the original languages. I go to the commentators. I go to Christian history just to make sure I'm not out to lunch. This is also known as a preemptively avoid hate mail day, right? Like if you can make sure you're not a fool before you preach, it usually eliminates people telling you you're a fool after you preach. So that's what I do on Thursday. Think of it as like my life insurance day. That's Thursday. And then Friday, I write it. First thing in the morning, I get up. Once my kids are gone to school, I write my sermon. When I'm done, it's the weekend. I'm like, celebrate. I don't exist. If you ever try to call me on a Friday, I won't answer because I'm just out celebrating Jesus, his goodness. My sermon is done. Hallelujah. Saturday, I just chill. I hang out. I have fun until Saturday night. You may be at my house on a Saturday night. Come 9.30, I'm going to evac the meeting and go and sit at my table, and I sit with my text, and that's when I highlight it. Then I go to sleep, and I sleep the sleep of the just. I wake up Sunday morning, I go downstairs, I do my push-ups, my plank, my squats, and then I go to my Bible, and I open up my text, and I read it one last time to make sure I haven't lost my mind, and then I get the fear, and then I come here and do what I can. Okay, that's my habit. I've done it that way for 20 years. I never, ever miss it. I've written sermons on airplanes. I've written them on islands. I've written them on trains. Wherever I am, I will not break this habit. It's one of my good habits. Here's one of my weirder habits. I don't know if you've noticed, but I have perfectly bald knuckles. Why is that? Because I find hairs. Oh, there's one. And then I bite them. That's better. See? Perfectly clean knuckles. It's a very weird habit. Okay, we all have them. Habits, good habits, bad habits. We're pretty hilariously habit-oriented. And uh, this book that I love links it all to the urge we have to survive. Now, he's writing, of course, with an evolutionary perspective, top of mind, and that's fine. I don't allow that perspective to make me you know, not interact with his research. 
And his idea is that our brain forms habits to allow us to free up space so that we can survive. So that we can make it. Survival. All of us can relate to a deep instinct to survive. We all have a deep instinct of self-preservation that's been built into us. Right? So, you know, fabulously clean, hairless knuckles. They're not going to be make or break when it comes to survival, but it's a good thing. Okay? But it is very easy to move from perfectly hairless knuckles to an instinct for survival that is so strong in us and we allow it to become such a dominant part of our life that it becomes almost idolatrous. Our self-preservatory instinct can become so dominant that it becomes an idol. It becomes a false god. You'll know this is true in your life when you find yourself continuously trying to ascend God's throne because you think that you can do a better job of taking care of yourself than He can. This is exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 20 with Abraham and Abimelech. Here it is. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed to Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose up early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The big idea from this chapter today is that hopefully you will learn some things as we explore it to keep in mind while you're working to break the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. That's what I hope you get. I hope you get some tools to help you as you work to break the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. Starting with verses 1 through 2. Abraham and his family head south from Mamre, which is right near Hebron in modern Israel. They head about 60 kilometers south to Gerar. We don't know why. 
We know the Negev is the desert portion of Israel. So in the spring, it can be quite beautiful, full of blooming flowers at the end of the winter. Then through the summer, it gets pretty ugly. It's hot and blasted and difficult. And then through the fall and winter, it gets quite nice again. So we don't know why they went. It doesn't say there was a famine. Typically, Abraham is headed south because it's a time of famine. This time, it doesn't say why. It just says that he did. He headed south towards Gerar. Once he gets there, Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar, at this time, kings weren't really regional. They were quite local. So you would be the king of a city and its surrounding area. So there were many petty kings, shall we call them. So Abimelech is one of these. He is the king of the city of Gerar. And so Abraham and his family, probably several hundred people, show up outside Gerar. They pitch their tents. They settle in. And Abimelech sends his men to collect Sarah. Why? Well, he wants to add her to his harem. My first point is neither lofty nor poignant, but worth noting. How gorgeous was this woman? Right? The first time this happened back in Genesis chapter 12, she's in her 60s. This woman is now more than 90 years old. And she is so remarkable that no sooner has she shown up than the king comes to collect her. Thank you very much. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'll take the 90-year-old gorgeous one in the back. How gorgeous was this woman? Right? This just keeps happening. Just a non-sequitur kind of point here. Ladies, you are gorgeous and lovely and outstanding and remarkable, and we stand in awe of you. We see the glory of God in you, and you are wonderful to have around. So if you're a woman here this morning, feel celebrated. Right? Think of Sarai, Sarah, your matriarch, and know that this woman was so remarkable that when she rolled into town... It was on. So you are powerful and amazing and awesome and gorgeous, and we see the beauty of God in you because you were made in God's image and likeness. You're our partners in this life, and we celebrate you, and we love you, and you're awesome, and I hope you feel that this morning. And I also want to apologize because sometimes we act the fool. And when we do act the fool, it's our fault, just like with Abimelech. Abraham shows up, Abimelech says, go get her, I want her. God's not happy. He shows up to Abimelech in a dream, and I love how the Lord speaks. He says, you're a dead man. Right? He's not mincing any words, just straight to the point, you're dead. That's a very bad dream, right? You're like, you're sleeping, everything's positive. God shows up, you're dead. Because this woman that you've taken is another man's wife. And I love Abimelech's reaction. He's like, what are you talking about, Lord? Did not the husband say that she was his sister? And even she said that he was her brother. Why are you mad at me? You ever felt that way? Like God's mad at you for no reason? From Abimelech's perspective, he's done nothing wrong. I sometimes feel that way. I'm like, why, why are you punishing me, Lord? What, what have I done? Abimelech is a relativist. He's like, it's fine by me. I do this all the time. Look at the size of my harem. What I do? From his perspective, he's done nothing wrong. He's a relativist. He's doing what seems right to him. From his point of view, it's perfectly fine for him to send soldiers and collect women for his harem. Why are you mad at me, God? 
Relativism and entitlement. These are two things to watch for as you work to break free from the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. Entitlement, like, I deserve this. Look at me. I'm the king of the city. I deserve a large harem. Go, go collect me some women for my harem. Right? He's, he feels entitled, like he deserves this. Entitlement, it can sneak up in your life too. Fortunately, none of us have harems anymore, thank God, right? It's a good thing, good situation. But that sense of entitlement works its way into our lives in other insidious ways. So watch for it if you're looking to break free from the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. Also, watch for relativism. Watch for moments when you place yourself in the seat of judge. You're like, this is fine. I'm good with this. This is a real challenge, right? To have a circumcised heart in this area means that you're constantly involved in deep self-introspection. You're like, is this the right thing or the wrong thing? Did I say that right or did I say that wrong? It can get exhausting, I know. But it's very important for us as people made in the image of God, looking to be his friends, looking to serve him, for us to be sensitive to this, to not ascending the throne of judge and being, you know, fine and good in our own eyes. Flee these two, entitlement and relativism, if you want to break free. I don't deserve this. I I don't have a problem with this. Watch it. Why? Because we need to remember that God is the one ultimately who's in charge. What really matters is what he wants, what he deserves, what he thinks is cool or not. Ultimately, it's his perspective that is the important one, not ours. Which is why what happens in verses 6 and 7 is really incredible. Then God said to him in a dream, Hear this. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. I love this. Why? Because God knows the condition of Abimelech's heart. Okay, he says to Abimelech, I know you did this in the integrity of your own heart. And subtext, it's not good enough. Right? What you consider to be the integrity of your own heart is not good enough. How do we know it's not good enough? Because God had to show up to save him from his integrity. Right? He's like, I know you did this from your perspective. It's cool. I'm here to tell you it's not cool. And because I'm just and merciful, I have been the one who has restrained you from approaching her. Do you see that in the text? A very important nuance. God knew that Abimelech would get a failing grade when it came to integrity. So God stepped in before Abimelech even knew there was a problem to save him from sinning against God. This is powerful, right? This is God showing mercy to someone before that someone even knows they need mercy. If you really want to push the point, Abimelech's not even a believer here. He's not one of God's people. He's not a Jew. He's just a king of a city in Canaan. And God is being kind to him. He's showing him mercy even before he knows he needs mercy. As you work to break free from the habit of idolatrous self-preservation, remember that freedom ultimately depends on God's mercy. And God doles out his mercy as he sees fit. Okay, And it's ultimately rooted in him and only in him. So in light of that, let's cut ourselves and each other some slack. Right? We all need mercy, even if we don't know that we need it yet. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You need to learn to forgive freely. Why? Well, because it gives God glory. Well, what if I don't feel like it? Well, I understand that. But if you're looking to follow Jesus, you need to get over that. You need to learn to forgive because it gives God much glory. Because saying I'm not in the mood to forgive is a very non-gospel perspective. Right? Can you see that? Like, there's no need to forgive if the gospel isn't true. Right? I think it's safe to say in a world where self-preservation is king, what does forgiveness profit? Right? In a world where self-preservation is king, it would seem to me that victory and vengeance would be the deals of the day. Right? If their highest goal was to preserve yourself, then vengeance and victory would be the things with which you would be preoccupied. And I don't know if you've experienced the world as I've experienced it, but I have met much more vengeance and victory in my human interactions than I have met mercy. Because at the end of the day, most people, myself included, right? I'm warring against this as I awaken into the image and likeness of Christ. Most people, they're really concerned about themselves. And at the end of the day, all that matters to them is them. And if you get in the way, a quest for victory, a quest for vengeance. This is what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's powerful. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. Why on earth would I love my enemies? I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question. I do struggle with this from time to time. And the reminder is this. Why on earth would I love my enemies? Because that's what God has done for me in Christ. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. While I was still God's enemy, Christ died for me. While you were still God's enemy, Christ died for you. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel, right? That God did not leave us to our own devices, lost in sin, okay? Slaves to sin, fallen and abandoned. Why? Because of the sin of our first parents in the garden? Because we've been born with a sin nature? Because left to our own devices, we always do the things we don't want to do and we never do the things we do want to do. Left to our own devices, we get caught time and time and time and time again in a habit loop. And sometimes these habits destroy us. Yes, we know neuroscience is involved. And we also know that sin is involved. 
A habit is a wonderful thing when it's a good thing, a God thing, a God-glorifying thing, a thing that does good to the world around us in Christ's name. But you and I both know that many of us deal with destructive habits that are rooted in our sinfulness, from which we can, seems like we can never escape. It's a problem. A problem that only God could fix. Which is why in the fullness of time, according to the Scripture, God became a man. Jesus Christ, God the Son, entered into space-time history. And He went to the cross. Why? So that as He hung there, God the Father could lay on Him the iniquity of us all. Your sin and mine. And He could punish Him in our place for our sin. So that Jesus could deal with our sin problem. So that He could die in your place. So that He could rise again as the firstborn from the dead. So that He could ascend to His Father's right hand and then sit down and intercede for you cheer for you, sing over you, build a house for you, a place from which he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his never-ending kingdom, a kingdom in which you have a place and a job to do. He saved you from sin. He saved you from yourself. He has loved you even when you had no love in your heart for him. God has shown his goodness towards you in Christ. His glory is shown forth by His mercy. So when you give mercy, because you have been given mercy, God gets His glory. When you are kind to someone, even though no kindness is called for, God gets His glory. When you do the right thing, even though it's difficult, and you do the right thing because you know that God has done the right thing for you, that God is altogether righteous and just, that He always does the right thing in every given situation, and you've come to believe that you're made in His image and likeness, you're His daughter, you're His son, you're meant to be like Him, to mirror Him back to a lost and dying world, when you do the right thing in light of that, God gets His glory. Someone cuts in front of you, you don't cuss them out, God gets His glory. And I know it's hard. Someone slaps you and you give them the other cheek, God gets His glory. Someone asks for help and you go the extra mile, God gets His glory. Glory. And that's ultimately what this is all about. God's glory, God's fame, God's kindness, God's grace. It's all about Him and it is not about us. So if it's all about Him, Todd, why did He choose to use Abraham as His prophet? Why does He say to Abimelech, He's a prophet and He'll pray for you? If this is all about God, why does Abraham need to be involved at all? Why would God bother inviting Abraham to join him on his mission? Why would he bother inviting us to join him on his mission? Well, he would do it because it pleases him. We don't speak enough about the pleasure of God. He does things because it pleases him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, his church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the operative sentence right there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, reconciled and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the 
gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. For it pleased God. It pleased the Lord. God does stuff because it pleases Him. That's why He gets Abraham involved. Because it makes Him happy to do so. Doesn't have to. Doesn't need you. Doesn't need me. Didn't need Abraham. But He's pleased to make us His partners. It makes Him happy to involve us in His mission. And I want you to notice that despite the fact that God involves Abraham in His mission... Abraham remains highly imperfect. Look at verses 7 through 13. I'll paraphrase them for you. God says in verse 7, Get the prophet to pray, or else you're dead. All right? That's what happens in verse 7. So here's a little note for us as we work to break free from the habit of idolatrous self preservation. Watch for God's friends and messengers in your life. Okay? He may send you a prophet once in a while. Most of the time, a real prophet won't parade themselves as a prophet. Here I am, Prophet Paul, here to save you. And most of the time, the genuine article is pretty low-key and understated. And they'll often approach you quietly without anyone seeing or hearing, and they'll just say simply, could I share with you something? I feel like the Lord has asked me to tell you the following. And then they'll share with you a word that they've received from the Lord for you. Most of the time, if they're giving you a good word, that word will be something you've already been processing, dealing with, struggling with. Oftentimes, it's something you've been resisting. Like God's told you to do something, you're like, no, Lord, that's crazy. And then somebody you've never met who doesn't know you will show up and say, you know, I know this might sound weird. And then they'll tell you exactly the thing that God's been telling you. That's how it's always been in my life when someone's come to me with a good word. Okay? And they'll be quiet about it. It'll align with Scripture. It'll be gospel-saturated. It'll just make sense. You're like... Yeah, that makes sense. So watch for it. God has friends, and sometimes he sends his friends to you because you're his friend also. So watch for his friends as you're trying to break free from the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. And be responsive when God speaks to you through one of his friends. Abimelech is responsive. Calls a meeting, tells all his guys, um, it's my bad. The gorgeous 90-year-old that I collected, it's a bad idea. So we're all going to die unless I can get this prophet to pray. So, And we also know in a minute he's going to give them like a huge gift. So I bet in this meeting he got his guys working on assembling the gift so that by the time he got to Abraham, he could blow his mind. And he says to Abraham, um, why did you do this to us? Why did you caused me to enter into this grave sin. What did you see? And Abraham says in verses 10 through 11, well, I saw that there was no fear of God at all in this place. Sounds an awful lot like our culture, doesn't it? Yes, I know what Gerar would have been like. Because I live in a world where it seems like there is no fear of God at all in this place. Key point for us as we work to break free from the habit of idolatrous self-preservation. Don't be a product of the culture. Don't be a product of a culture in which there is no fear of the Lord at all. Rather, be a product of the kingdom. Okay? Be in the world, but not of it. Right? This is the world in which we live, but let's be products of the kingdom. Let's grow up into the kind of people who people look at and go, they are clearly from the New Jerusalem. They are clearly not from Guelph. They're from Zion. You might laugh. You think, that's ridiculous. I know, but that's our life goal. 
to be in this world, but look like we belong to God's kingdom. Let it never be said of us, of our church, of our families, of our lifestyle. There is no fear of God at all in that place. Let's not do that. And let's also stop doing what we've always done. I mean, unless we want to always get what we've always got. Worship team, I'm almost done. Look at verse 13. And here's where the thesis of this sermon hits home. Abraham is speaking. He says, And when God caused me to wander, verse 13, from my father's house, I said to Sarah, my wife, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Friends, Abraham and Sarah have been doing this for 25 years. Right? 75 when he left Haran. He's now 100. 25 years they've been playing with half-truths. 25 years they've been living in such a way that says to God, Well, Lord, we have an idea. We know you've called us to wander, but do you see how gorgeous this woman is? It's going to get me into hot water. So I was thinking maybe she could pretend to be my sister. What do you think about that? Obviously, he didn't ask God, because if he had, what do you think God would have said? That's a bad idea. Because you're going to go down to Egypt, and then Pharaoh's going to take her. And he's going to sleep with her, so I have to strike his household with plagues. And you're going to have to live with that. And the poison of that experience is going to enter into your household so that eventually you end up sleeping with her maidservant, Hagar, who you haven't met yet, and I would prefer you not to meet. And there's going to be this kid, Ishmael. Oh, Lord, have... I mean, I am the Lord, but have mercy, says the Lord. I'm speaking as if God is speaking to Abraham. We got that. We're clear. This is a bad idea, man. Don't do it. But he doesn't ask. That's the point. My wife was interacting with this text this morning, prepping for Grace Kids. She's like, this is ridiculous. God himself spoke to this man. And yet here he is still doing the same dumb thing. And I was like, yes, and there's hope for us too. <laughs> right? 25 years. You want to talk about a habit? They had a habit of idolatrous self-preservation. And it was not a good situation. Thankfully, Abimelech makes it right in verses 14 through 16. This is probably what he got his dudes to collect. Sheep, oxen, male and female slaves, and a thousand shekels of silver. It's very hard to value what a thousand shekels of silver would have been worth. The closest we can get is that at the time, a slave in Egypt was worth 30 shekels of silver. So a thousand shekels of silver, it's like 333 slaves. That's how much money Abimelech gave to Sarai on top of the sheep, oxen, and male and female servants. This is the non-dowry of all dowries, from a harem-fixated relativist king to a habitually self-preserving patriarch with a gorgeous woman caught in between and a merciful God at work through it all. And that's the point. Our merciful God is at work through it all to show us that He's in charge and we're not. So Abraham prays to that Lord. And that Lord heals Abimelech and heals his wife and heals the women of his harem because the Lord God had stopped their wombs. 
God heals. God restores. God forgives. God is the one who's involved. God is the one who's in control. And we're just the silly people who need to get it through our thick skull that that's the way it is. That He gets the throne and we don't. I'll say it again. He gets the throne and we don't. Which is why we need to stop doing what we've always done. That's why we need to stop trying to ascend that throne. Because He's already seated there. Instead, we should focus our efforts and do everything we can to break the habit.